It's good to see each of you this morning, and my privilege to welcome you in the name of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and hoping you had a wonderful week this past week. We get a new one beginning today. This is the last uh, Sunday of July, and what I would like to do is uh, ask that you turn with me to the book of Esther. This would be Esther chapter 6. We'll pick up where we left off last time, and I'm going to try to get through this in a quicker fashion today because of something I want to mention toward the end of the service. And uh, if you have your place there, Esther chapter 6. Verses 1 through 4, let me begin reading. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. He said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court, the king's palace, to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman said to himself, Who would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought with the king that has worn or that the king is worn, and the horse that the king is ridden, and on whose head the royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Now the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 12, Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife said to him, If Mordecai before you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Last verse, verse 14 While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your word, and for our opportunity in your house on this Sunday, the first day of the week. Lord, open to us what we do not know or understand. And Lord, would you give us what's necessary to see ourselves, to see our own heart, our own faults, where we need to be more in line with you, and certainly more or less like ourselves. Lord, be our teacher. May we be your students, and this for your glory. We ask in your precious name. Amen. Now, I perceive we've had some audio difficulties today. Usually that's no fault of anyone other than uh, stuff just breaks sometimes. But I'm sure they'll be working on this the best they can. And I'll do what I should always do and speak up. So we'll work with each other together on this. But let's start plotting points, making notes this morning. Um, each sermon is different. Sometimes they fall out in three points and maybe a poem. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's just one central argument and it's rather pointless as far as adding notes. But we'll keep it simple today and just follow the text. First point is this. The king can't sleep. That's a dramatic way to open the sixth chapter, isn't it? On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles. And they were read before the king. So Ahasuerus, Xerxes would be his Persian name. He rules over 147 provinces. Of everybody but the Greeks are under his control. He's the man. What has he got to worry about? Probably a lot. But what's interesting is that no one else in this passage is said to be sleepless. It's the king who's sleepless. Now Esther is working on a plan to ask for an accommodation that the Jews should defend themselves against this law, this edict, that they all should die about a year from now. So she's got plenty to stay awake about. What about Mordecai? Well, maybe less than Esther, but he's the one that dressed in sackcloth, is getting the word out, is in the process of fasting for the purpose of this, their plan working out. Uh, what about every last Jew that uh, may very well be sleeping one of the last days of their lives? That might keep one up at night. What about Haman? He's just decided he's going to hang Mordecai on a big pole, 75 feet high. He can't wait to get up in the morning to ask permission to do that. Maybe he would be up late. The only person we read about being up late is the king. And he has at his disposal, certainly whatever he wishes to do in the middle of the night when one can't sleep, uh, whether he decides he wants to sleep or would rather stay awake. It's interesting that he would choose to listen to the history books read. How many of you would do that? Go get the encyclopedia, kids, or the phone book. Now, if you wanted to go back to bed... That might be it. If it was my house, I'd say, go dig out you know, your daddy's old sermons and you should be asleep pretty quick. But this guy, he certainly doesn't like for things 
to keep his interest. He's got a whole harem. Obviously, he's tired of that. That's not mentioned at all. But the author doesn't give us any clue as to why he's asleep. And as we read on, the coincidence are building up so quickly. This is none other than the hand of God. But at this point in the story, it's simply the king cannot sleep. Verse 2, it was found out or written that Mordecai had uh, saved his life. He, he told about these fellows, Bigthan, Bigthana, who might have been Bigthan's big brother, I don't know, um, from the previous chapter, and Teresh. And as the story goes, we talked about this in chapter 3. Mordecai hears of this plot against the king. And he's able to tell Esther, who tells the king, disaster averted. But Mordecai never gets recognized for it. And we talked about how that'll just go into the books and tick like a time bomb until it's needed down the road. Well, here is where the bomb explodes. The king learns that nothing has been done for him. The king had asked, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Now, we also talked about how Persian rulers were known uh, for their taking very good care of those who were found to be loyal to their crown. And this shouldn't be confusing. It makes good sense that if you reward those who are loyal and you quickly dispatch with those who are disloyal, it's safer to be the king in that realm, right? If you never worry about the people who protect you, and you never really do anything about the people who are a danger, you'll be a short-lived king. A lot of power for a coup to swallow up. So the Persians were known for being very cruel to those that crossed them, but very generous to those who were loyal. So when he hears of this, he wants something done about it. Um, The king's young men attended him, said nothing has been done. So look in verse 4, and this is our second point. The king asks for assistance. So the king can't sleep, but somewhere mid-morning, early, early morning, dawn perhaps, the king asks for assistance. Look at verse 4. And the king said, who is in the court? Who Who can fix this? Uh, We're going to need a lawyer to get it done, but who's in the court? And then look at that verse there as it continues. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. So time out. The tough part about dramatically studying a passage of Scripture that you already know how it shakes out is that you already know how it shakes out. Sometimes just for dramatic effect when you're working through this, it's good to take a time out, pause, and just look at how the story unfolds. So from last week, here this man is invited to a dinner with the king. His name's Haman. He's all impressed. He goes home, gets his family and his friends together to say, I'm... More awesome than you thought I was yesterday because I get to go to another feast tomorrow. Except for this guy Mordecai. It doesn't really mean much to me. He aggravates me so much because of all the people that bow down, he doesn't. You remember the story. And that's when they said, well, why don't you have him killed in the morning? And then you can go to your feast happy. So he gets up early 
You know, you've heard the early bird gets the worm. Well, he thinks the early bird gets his death sentence for the guy he hates. And that's why he's in the court. He's waiting for the king to get up. So that that's the first thing that hits the king's ears if he's granted permission to see the king. Now, the king has been up all night. And what he's been listening to is history. He finds out in the history that this same guy, Mordecai, saved his life but was never honored for it. So you have two men now, after the king has asked who's in the court. Oh, Haman just entered the court. Two men who are looking for each other with the same guy on their mind. One wants to kill him. The other wants to honor him. And it's only really the reader right here who can enjoy the irony and the suspense. Because both of them, it really depends on who speaks first. Not knowing exactly what the other is thinking, but likely the first to speak has the best chance of disillusioning the other and getting what they want, right? It's a fantastic, dramatic arrangement. When the king hears that Mordecai has not been rewarded, he asks who can handle it. Who's in the court? Lo and behold, it's Haman. So it seems odd. Here's something tangled inside there that's strange as well. Seems odd that honoring Mordecai the Jew, the king seems not to be aware of the contradiction between honoring Mordecai the Jew, that's his word, when he's already signed the death warrant to kill all the Jews later that year. Does he plan to somehow make Mordecai immune from that and all his family is killed? I don't know. The author doesn't tell us, and it would seem as an oversight on his part. He's been up all night, perhaps. But could he have intended to save him secretly? We don't know. The storyteller leaves us to wonder how it is that a Jew is found worthy of the highest honor, but that the king believed from Haman that it wasn't in his profit to let the rest of them live. That was his words from chapter 3. So the suspense exists. It's terrible. We hope it lasts, right? (laughs) The king knows little of Haman's plans, as little to kill Mordecai as Haman knows of the king's plans to honor Mordecai. Which one will speak first and disillusion the other? Verse 6. So Haman came in and said to the king, the king said to him rather, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Brilliant way to put that. If he'd mentioned the name Mordecai, the whole suspense is shut. Because he hates Mordecai. But that's not what the king said. The king said, what should I do for the man that I delight to honor? Now for Haman, who's got the biggest head in Persia. This is an open invitation. The biggest trap of his life. And he walks right into it. Whether or not he knew he was walking to it. Whether or not the king knew he was walking into it. Pretty sure that Esther doesn't know that he's walking into it, even though he's part of her plot to ask the king in his presence why he did what he did. All that is in the next chapter. And, spoiler alert, 
And I did this on purpose last week. I told you we were going to hang Haman next week. I lied. It's next week. You got to come back again. So point number three, Haman miscalculates. So the king can't sleep. The king asks for assistance. Haman miscalculates. So Haman came in. King said to him, what shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So first of all, we're given insight into this man's heart. That phrase, Haman said to himself. That is privileged information. Haman didn't say that out loud. Haman, who wouldn't? It doesn't work like that. What this is called is the third person omniscient. It's a feature in biblical literature where we, the reader, have insight into the heart or thinking of a person as the record describes it. So we have inside information to what he's thinking. We haven't seen this as far as the other characters. We haven't read what Esther thinks or what Mordecai thinks inside. But we do with Haman. So when that happens, you come across it, you might ask yourselves, what do, what do we think of that? What do we think of what we see? What do we see in Haman's thinking? Oh, it's a mess. Uh, the pride is prelude to a massive fall. But then, as far as a depravity check, which should be featured in every message, whether we like it or not, and you can choose whether or not to just call this Isaac ruins everything. But how many of you in recent memory can recall someone saying something and for most of the sentence you were just sure they were talking about you? Only to find out that it wasn't you they were talking about. The compliment was for another. And aren't you glad you didn't interrupt them with a cheese-eating grin that you couldn't quickly defer to the other person they were really talking about. Maybe you did. I don't know. Um, it shouldn't surprise you that anyone whose livelihood revolves around speaking in public, that can happen a lot. It can surprise you how you jump to the conclusion that the world revolves around you. And you have to repeatedly beat that back to get out of your own way, it seems. This guy, there's no stopping Haman, knocking himself down in his own way. Haman had appeared to have achieved everything that was available to a man in the Persian Empire other than the king himself. But even all of this was not enough to make him happy. He had to have more. And at what we're looking at right here, he risks betraying his selfish heart in the presence of the king in order to stack up the, the reward for this guy who the king delights to honor. He's going so all in that he's risking the king detecting he refers to himself. Does that make sense? Whether or not the king is clued in on that he's talking about himself or not, it's hard to say. So look at what he says should be done. We'll just skim through this. Haman said to the king, For that guy, royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. Uh, 
some people get a kick out of and pay a lot of money for a game-worn jersey with a guy's name on the back. Well, actually, wore this in a game. This is a king-worn robe. He's already worn it. It's his. And then his horse. You know, if you had the, you know, the dirt bike somebody won a trophy on or something. Or your own NASCAR that was decommissioned. Now, that might be cool. Well, this is the king's horse that he had ridden. And whose head a royal crown is set. Now, that's probably a crown on the horse. The way the, the, the grammar works. But that wasn't uncommon. The, the king's horse wore a crown with his insignia on it. They were fancy. We established that in chapter 1. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the king's most noble officials. So don't just get anybody to put this coat on this man. Use the top brass. Let them dress the man and lead the man on the horse through the square. That's where the most people would be. And then the best of all, proclaiming before him. You make the top brass shout. This is the one that the king delights to honor. This is how he treats him. So had the king understood that Haman intended this for himself, if he could see through Haman's words, this description adds up to borderline treason. You think anybody could get close enough to the king to grab his robe and run off with it? No, they'd, they'd take care of him right quick. So to wear the king's robe, to ride the king's horse with the king's crown is just a few clicks back from being the king yourself. Right? This is bold. Also notice, nothing is mentioned in that list having to do with wealth or even power. Haman had all that. Which is another way of betraying his heart. If this was just any old guy, um, half hour worth of riding down the street in the king's robe and horse with a nice herald, or, I don't know, five million ought to be enough to just live off the interest any way I like. Take the five million. He doesn't need five million, and he doesn't need power. Except the king's position, he's got all that he can have. Remember, if Haman is willing to kill the man who saved the king's life, the king doesn't fit Haman's agenda. And that's where he's dangerously close to identifying in the king's knowledge that this man is a threat to him. He would take it all if he could get it. So verse 10, the king said to Haman, and there's going to be three hurries between now and the end of the chapter. Hurry. Take the robes and the horse, as you've said. And I don't know how to insert the, dr the drama worthy of what this would have been like. I don't know if you've watched stuff on YouTube. There's certain things that are kind of popular. Uh, those revenge videos are good. Uh, what is that? Uh, instant karma videos where the person who tried to trip somebody actually falls down instead. We've talked about this before. But there are some, I think they're called, watch so-and-so die inside. And what it is is people running their mouths and finding out that it's not at all the way they think it is. Or having uh, someone correct what they just knew was absolutely true. Or some guy 
proposing and the girl in front of everybody in the jumbotron goes <laughs> no I've actually been in the arena watched on the jumbotron but I haven't yet seen anybody say no I've wondered if they get to the car no <laughs> I wouldn't do that to everybody in there but I'll tell you it's not happening but sometimes we get to a spot where we couldn't have been more wrong and we're the last to know about it. So what happens here? Hurry, get the robe, get the horse, everything you said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. Now the only words that Haman has said yet is this long list of how he expects to be praised. He forgot about the reason he was there to start with. Oh, before the banquet, can I kill this guy who sits at your gate? He was an official, had to get permission. So this, this, is, this has got to be the, the, the apex of tragic comedy. Maybe not just in the Old Testament, but the New as well. What must it have been like to hear that name? And if you take apart what the king had said it, it, it's, it's quite brutal the king's response is clear first of all it's urgent he uses the word hurry it's also precise just as you have said Haman and then it's also without uh, or with warning leave out nothing that you have mentioned you do it all just like you said as fast as you can now, again, we've got a, the playground for the imagination, what it must have been like for him to carry this out. Um, I heard sometimes I'll listen to recordings of other pastors go through passages that were scheduled to teach uh, while I'm riding up and down the road. And one of them said, could you imagine him getting a call from his wife? So how'd it go? Well, hang on for a minute. Uh, I've got to make another proclamation. This is the one who... <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, just riding through the square. Why? I'll tell you when I get home. <laughs> but what would it be like to be Mordecai? Now, is he a, a modest person? He hadn't been with his refusing to bow down in front of this guy. Maybe he's like, hey, could you do that a little louder? That's that my friend over there. And, and especially that part about uh, whom the king delights to honor. Um, you're not saying it fast enough. I want you to say it at least 10,000 times before this is over. You don't know if he did that or not. But this is known as a reversal. Where all the anguish on one is switched to the other. And all the praise is switched from one to the other. Massive reversal. So let's go to verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried, that's the second hurry, to his house, mourning with his head covered. So obviously this was embarrassing. He doesn't want anybody to know it's him as he goes from wherever they parked the horse to wherever he lives. Haman told his wife, all his friends, everything. Then his wise men, his wife... And here's what they say. It's totally different from less than 24 hours earlier. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, 
is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but he will surely fall. You will surely fall before him. So point number four, Haman's in trouble. He crossed the line. And try to imagine not what this sounds like in the inner circles of political government, but what this looks like to the people who were buying tomatoes in the square that morning. They all know who Haman is. They have to bow down. And a lot of them probably know who Mordecai is, who wouldn't. But who's wearing the king's robe and who's on the king's horse and who's like the guy wearing the dunce hat in the back of the schoolroom? Who's saying this is what is done to the man whom the king delights to honor? What would be your conclusion? We have a new prime minister. There's no way that this is just, you know, the way you say happy birthday Mordecai. It's not that he won the lottery or it's, you know, this isn't how this works. So his family have doubtless heard what's come back. And what they see is a change of power, that reversal. And once begun, it's going to end badly. So they predict his end. And then verse 14, which is actually in some of your translations, the way it is in my ESV, it's attached to the next paragraph like it's part of chapter 7, but it's not. It's verse 14 of chapter 6. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrive, and number three, hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Everything's been hurried in this chapter. Everything was so slow, drawn out the previous chapters. Uh, This is how drama takes... Uh, takes on speed and escalation. Usually when pride precedes a fall, the fall happens quickly. I'm not sure why that is, but it tends to be that way, doesn't it? I remember uh, sitting at lunch with a guy who was a youth leader when I was younger. And this was later when I worked uh, on staff at the church, and we happened to have lunch. And for the first time, uh, we talked about what this man did for a living. You know, usually you don't ask that in youth groups. So, what do you do? Um, I mow my dad's yard. What do you do? <laughs> but he worked for social services, and he helped track down and collect child support from. Dads who wouldn't pay it. And it's interesting to hear how that all works. And he summed it all up by saying, basically, what I do for a living is make sure men pay for a 20-minute bad trade. You'll have to fill in the blanks there. What would take 20 minutes that could ruin my home? But usually that itself is a long time in coming, developing. You don't just go do that in one afternoon. No, you start thinking that way perhaps years earlier. But when that's actually done, usually the repercussions fall out rather swiftly. 
And it's tragic and it's sad. And it's a testimony to the fact that we each have a broken heart that will lie to us, defined in Jeremiah 17, 9, which is desperately wicked. Haman's in trouble. He's not gone yet. But it, the roles have reversed. So let's add a fifth point, and this will be our what's in this for me or for us. We've, we've looked at what was. What about here and now? What do we do with this? Well, point number five, if the king can't sleep and the king needs help or assistance, Haman miscalculates. Haman is in trouble. All of that add up to God is in control. And this is where you see the secret, invisible hand of God working where we haven't seen it yet. The tables have turned in this book, and not because of the faith of the Jews, though they have been praying and fasting. It is not because of the fearless action of Esther, though that is admirable. And I, we, we would say it's a fearless act, but I'm pretty sure she's terrified in doing so. None of us ever do things that look fearless without being fearful. And I don't think it has anything to do with the obstinance of Mordecai, though that certainly did kick off these chain of events. What seems to bring all that together? What Esther has done, what Mordecai has done, what Haman has done, what the people are fasting and praying over, it all comes together when the king can't sleep. And when the king chooses to have the most boring of literature read to him in the middle of the night. And then the king does what he should have done earlier. We don't know why he didn't. And this man Haman who happens to be there who can answer the question of the king. Though he's there for the opposite reason for which the plan unfolds. This is none other than the hand of God. So God is in control and that's obvious. And if we were to spiritualize this text, and that's something that you do with, uh, with a careful understanding of both the narrative of Scripture and the theology that is taught within it. We've talked about how there's no discernible hero in this book. And if we were just speaking on, ter on moral terms alone, uh, Esther probably would, would be at the top of that list of things we could learn from. But that would not be faithful to Scripture. Jesus is the hero of all 66 books of the Bible. But how do we see Jesus in this picture? Well, this is one of the clearest pictures I think we've come across yet. If you were to change the words slightly, who is the man that God... The great king delights to honor. Now, we, if, if, if we're quick to, to try to beat somebody to the buzzer before somebody else get it, gets it, you might blurt out, Moses, or Noah, or King David, the man after his own heart. When the truth is, no human being qualifies for that honor. That was all lost in the Garden of Eden with the bite of forbidden fruit. Who knows how long it took to decide to do that? Doesn't take very long to chew up a piece of fruit and everything has changed. The relationship is broken. Everything has fallen there. So no one is qualified to earn the honor of 
the king of the universe, God in heaven, except for one who was God himself and took on the form of humanity and was made in the likeness of men, who became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, as laid out in Philippians. So yes, there is one that qualifies. It's his son Jesus. And the difference between the way Haman operates, who, sad to say, represents the whole world in this equation, and the way Jesus operates could not be more different. And through the whole process of redemption, we know what took place before that promise of kingship, the making himself of no reputation and taking upon him the form of a servant being found in fashion as a man, all that, and then obedient to death on the cross. You almost wonder, had God at one point lost his delight in this man? And refused to honor him. At the point this man said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? That's precisely what's going on. He gave up all that honor. He gave up the king's robe. He gave up the king's horse. He gave up the king's crown. He gave up the residence in heaven to become a nobody and a nothing. To take your sins and mine on his shoulders and bear the full weight of the wrath of God against the sins of the world. How's that compare with Haman? It doesn't. This man took the lives of a whole people group. It r- reminds me of that, whole, that line in the, the, the awful movie Patton, where the, we will run over the enemy to grease the treads of our tanks. That's Haman. And would take the king's stuff if he could get his hands on it. He sees an open window. I'll get what I can while the getting's good. For what? For the recognition of everybody standing there that day. He couldn't get enough of it. So whose approval was Haman after? The king's? Well, it sounds like it. Who... Who's the man in whom the king delights to honor? Well, probably the guy who does the most for the king, right? Well, Mordecai had actually saved his life. But what had Haman done for him? Nothing other than stay close enough by that if he dropped anything, he could pick it up. Because he wanted his job. Haman cares nothing for the king. Now, Scrub through the Gospel of John any time anyone remotely got close to saying that Jesus had it going on and they wanted to be there with him. He'd say, foxes have holes, birds have deaths, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. Uh, you need to count the cost. What about the guy? I'll follow you. I want to bury my daddy first. Uh, you're going to need to leave that behind. The dead can bury the dead. But unless you never look back, you're not fit for the kingdom. What is he saying with all this? Pump the brakes. 
I'm here for more than just a good time. I'm here for your sin and you need to understand it. What did he say over and over again? He's there to be about the business of his father. He never took anything for himself. It was absolutely opposite of this guy, Haman. So Haman wanted the king's what, if you want to distill all this? His glory. That's what he wanted. He didn't want the king. He wanted the glory. Jesus. To glorify his father. Father glorify me. As you glorify yourself. The the prayer in chapter 17. All the glory is where? On Jesus? No. On his father. He would not take his father's glory. His father would share his glory with no one. Now they're both the same God. Theologically that's tough to think through. But the image is clear. God doesn't share his glory with anyone. He doesn't share it with us. We were created to glorify him. That's why he created us. And it suits his purpose to send his son to be crushed in our place to repair the relationship so we can continue to do what he created us to do to glorify him. And inasmuch as we spend our lives glorifying ourselves, we could not be any more antithetical toward his plan. To glorify oneself is to distance yourself from your God and your creator. Same as Haman distanced himself from the king he served. Now there's one thing Haman could have done. He could have repented and begged for mercy. Don't know if it would have done him any good. But in Psalm 2, toward the end, after the heathen have raged, there is a point where the invitation is given to kiss the sun. Kind of like kissing the ring. Promising your total loyalty. Might have still lost his position, but he could have saved his life. Don't know. That's the Persian Empire, and we have no idea the length of their generosity. Probably not a good prognosis. But with Jesus, it's absolutely different. That's the purpose for which he died in your place. To give you an eternal relationship with God forever in heaven. And forgive every last bit of it as far as the east is from the west. So this chapter teaches us a lot. But it sure teaches us that Jesus is a better every category. And certainly the one in whom God, the King of Kings, delights to honor. Helps us think about all kinds of stuff. I mean, we could just run the the gauntlet here. Even in our Christian service, do we sacrifice our time, our talent, our treasure to uh, hearken to messages long gone by because we want to glorify the king or because we want somebody to recognize what we're doing? Checking that internal motivator can be an excruciating business you know you wonder if if at some point in your life you've got money and you've got 
shelter and clothing and all this stuff that others may not have. So, so what is it that, that excites you? Being a big shot. So I'll do something extravagant. For what? The glory of God? Or to get written up in a bulletin? I don't know. That's not much. We found in the office that not everybody reads that bulletin. <coughs> because we have to pick them up and put them in the trash after you leave. <laughs> the things that we will justify, rationalize, which amount to trading gold for dirt, is uncovered by a story like this. And if we would rob God of his glory, then that doesn't put God in very good standing as far as our priorities. And for some, they make an entire religion out of it. God sits on his throne in heaven to supply me with his glory so that I can make the most of what I've got down here and my control over others. Haman lives in every last one of us. And we do good to regularly ask God to strip it from our hearts. With that said, I'm going to pray. And then uh, we're going to sing a song. I'll come back. I've got one thing to mention before we leave. But let's close this message in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for a story we believe to be true. Actual people, a real Mordecai, a real Esther, a real Xerxes, a real Haman, a real Isaac, a real ourselves. Lord, it's all the same. We're lost without you. Without your righteousness on our account, we have no hope of heaven. Lord, may we see with our eyes open our standing before you. Teach us about you, but teach us about ourselves and our need for your salvation. We thank you for the gospel in a book like Esther. And Lord, for those who have ears to hear, Lord, may they be born again. And may you be glorified in what has been said and done. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.